Luke chapter 3, and you'll find your place there in verse 21. Sometimes momentous events pass us by, and it is only upon reflection that we begin to appreciate their significance. Many in our nation were shocked and stunned by the events that took place on September 11th in 2001, but I was a teenage boy trying to pass a chemistry test. It was not until I saw my mother crying that afternoon that I began to reckon with the gravity of what had taken place. My lack of awareness on that day could be ascribed to youthful naivete. But it is illustrative in other ways, for history is filled with events which were largely unappreciated until time and reflection revealed their significance. This morning in the text before us, we come to an event whose moment so exceeds its humble setting that we will struggle, that we still struggle to comprehend it 2,000 years hence. And so if you found your place with me, would you follow along as I read in Luke 3, verse 21 and 22. Now when all the people were baptized and when Jesus also had been baptized and was praying... The heavens were opened, and the Holy Spirit descended on him in bodily form like a dove. And a voice came from heaven, You are my beloved Son. With you I am well pleased. Father in heaven, let this moment not pass us by. Lord, as we come to your holy word this morning, we pray that you would grant us understanding and grant us faith to believe and grant us to apply this word in our lives. That is, Lord, make us hearers and doers of it as we see and we behold your Son, your beloved Son, here in Luke chapter 3. We pray that you would conform us also to his image and that you would grant us to understand the heights and the depths of your love for us. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, the baptism of John the Baptist, or of Jesus by John the Baptist, was a significant event for the apostles and the disciples of Christ. Thus, the first words in Mark's gospel, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, are followed by a narrative of the ministry of John up to the baptism of Jesus. There is no birth narrative in Mark, and no lengthy prologue, yet here we have the beginning of the gospel according to Mark. Similarly, the fact that each gospel relates this event is a point of some importance since only a few passages are found in all four gospels. If this were not enough, we can consider the testimony of Peter. What Peter said in Acts chapter 1 when he was laying down qualifications for the apostle who would replace Judas, he said, So one of the men who have accompanied us during all the time that the Lord Jesus went in and out among us beginning from the baptism of John until the day when he was taken up from us. One of these men must become with us a witness to his resurrection. And again, when Peter preached the gospel to Cornelius in Acts chapter 10, verse 36 and 30 through 38, he said, As for the word that God sent to Israel, preaching good news of peace through Jesus Christ, he is Lord of all, you yourselves know what happened throughout all Judea, beginning from Galilee after the baptism that John proclaimed, how God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and with power. He went about doing good and healing all who were oppressed by the devil, for God was with him. 
Clearly, the early Christians recognized the significance of Jesus' baptism as the essential beginning or starting point of their proclamation. For Peter considered it an essential part of the apostolic testimony. And all four evangelists included this event near the beginning of their narratives. But we are left to wonder why. Why is this such an important aspect of Christian proclamation? I suspect we find our answer in the testimony that comes to us from some in the early church. As Christians found themselves in increasingly hostile debates concerning the nature of Christ and the triunity of God, they sometimes responded to their skeptics with this simple phrase, Go to the Jordan and you will see it. In other words, these early believers understood that those who bore witness to Jesus' baptism saw more than they could understand. For there on the banks of the Jordan, the one God revealed Himself to them as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. On that day at the Jordan, man beheld the triune God as he beheld Jesus Christ. And so this morning, let me invite you with those words, let us go to the Jordan And let us behold our triune God. But first, let me test this claim. This claim that this is the reason why this proclamation was so essential for the apostles. And we'll test it in two ways. By considering what Luke holds forward, that is what he highlights as important in this text, and by comparing his account with what we find in the other Gospels to see what they share in common and where they offer differing details. That is to say that those things which they all hold in common, I would suggest to you, are the the essential elements that make this testimony so important in the proclamation of the gospel. We read these words from Luke, Now when all the people were baptized, and when Jesus also had been baptized and was praying, the heavens were opened, and the Holy Spirit descended, on him in bodily form like a dove, and a voice came from heaven. You are my beloved son. With you, I am well pleased. The first verse sets the stage by establishing the setting. But the primary action begins at the end of that verse with three verbs. Three verbs coming at the end of verse 21 and into verse 22, where we see that the heavens were opened, the Spirit of God descended, and the voice came from heaven. It's not unimportant that Jesus was baptized. It's not unimportant that all the people had been baptized. And it's not unimportant that Jesus was praying at this moment. But Luke calls our attention to these things in a way of setting the scene. The main point comes then in those three actions. In the opening of the heavens, in the descent of the Spirit, and in the voice that came from heaven. As Darrell Bach puts it, Jesus gets baptized. The actual baptism itself is underplayed, since Luke makes clear that the important event followed the actual baptism. Now, we should, all, we should note the fact that that Luke calls attention to Jesus' praying. We will see this again and again in Luke. It's a unique aspect of Luke's account. The other gospel writers don't mention the fact that Jesus, Jesus was praying when all this happened. But Luke frequently calls attention to the way that Jesus prays, specifically at significant times in the course of his ministry. 
And so, in Luke 6, verse 12, when he selects the twelve apostles, we see that he is praying. And when Peter confesses him as the Christ, in Luke 9, 18, we see that Jesus was praying. And at the transfiguration, in Luke 9, 29, and when he instructs his disciples on how to pray in Luke 11, 1, we see that they're responding to the fact that he is praying. And again, before he goes to the cross in Gethsemane, he is praying. Luke is going to draw our attention to these aspects of his life to show us the prayer life of Jesus, and we'll see that as we proceed through Luke's gospel, but also to highlight significant events. Many very significant events in Luke's gospel follow after we see Jesus praying. And then the main action comes at the end of verse 21. It centers on those three verbs, as I've said, the opening of the heavens, the descent of the Spirit, and the voice that came from heaven. And I submit to you this morning that these are the three elements that all four Gospels share in common when they speak about the baptism of Christ. When we compare Luke with the other Gospels, we see that the other Gospel writers offer different details, but they include the same essential testimony. For example, only Matthew records these words spoken by John the Baptist in response to Jesus in Matthew 3, verse 14 and 15. There, Matthew writes, John would have prevented him, saying, I need to be baptized by you, and you come to me? But Jesus answered him, Let it be so now, for thus it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. According to Matthew, when Jesus came to be baptized, John resisted, but Jesus insisted, so John consented. And that's important in answering a question that all of us naturally will ask. Why would Jesus have to be baptized? If, after all, John's baptism was a baptism of repentance, what does it say about the person receiving the baptism? But John recognized that Jesus had no need to be baptized by him. In fact, the shoe should have been on the other foot. John said to Jesus, I'm the one who needs to be baptized by you. Jesus did not need to be baptized because he needed to be cleansed from any sin, for he has no sin. He is the perfect Son of God, always obedient to the Father. And Matthew uniquely draws our attention to this in recording the words of John as he received Jesus in the waters. And so what Matthew does, as most commentators observe, is he shows that in receiving the baptism, Jesus was identifying with his people, and he was affirming John's message. He was identifying with his people in this first instance, in a life where he would frequently set himself in the place of his people, ultimately putting himself forward in the place of his people when he went to the cross. We see it here in his baptism. But we also see his affirmation of what John was saying. Yes, it is necessary. Repentance is necessary. But that's something that Matthew uniquely draws our attention to. It's not something that all of the gospel writers share in this degree. In contrast, Luke does not even mention John in these two verses. We, of course, know based on the context that we've gone through in previous weeks that John is the one to baptize him, but Luke doesn't even name him in verse 21 or 22. 
But he joins with Matthew in bearing witness to the descent of the Spirit and God's words of approval. And Mark also joins his voice to Matthew and Luke with three brief statements affirming that Jesus came to be baptized, the Spirit indwelt him, and the Father spoke from heaven saying, You are my beloved Son, with you I am well pleased. The testimony of the Apostle John is the most unique But when we distill it, we see that he testifies to these same basic truths. For in John chapter 1, verses 32 through 34, we read these words, And John bore witness, I saw the Spirit descend from heaven like a dove, and it remained on him. I myself did not know him. But he who sent me to baptize with water said to me, He on whom you see the Spirit descend and remain, this is he who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. And I have seen and have borne witness that this is the Son of God. In other words, the Apostle John, citing the words of John the Baptist, highlights these same three truths. The Spirit of God came and remained upon Jesus, and the Father bore witness to John that Jesus was the Christ, the Son of God. If the consistent elements in this harmony are any indication, and if Luke indeed emphasizes what is essential, and I submit to you that he does, we can conclude that what is most significant in Jesus' baptism is God's self-revelation in his testimony concerning Christ. For as we stand on the banks of the Jordan, we think we are looking at a high and lofty mountain, and we are. But we are seeing much more than that. For the great rock that stands before us is maybe the highest of mountains, but it is only the tip of an iceberg. And it's an iceberg that goes all the way down to the ocean floor and keeps on going. When God rent the heavens 2,000 years ago, He declared something that was hidden in ages past. The one God made known that He is forever and always a trinity of persons, He is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And so let us look at this iceberg above and below the water. We see the tip of the iceberg as the heavens are open. The statement is a divine passive statement. What that means is that we know that it is God who is opening the heavens. God is the one who opens the heavens, but this phrase is often used in the Bible as a way of speaking of some revelation from God whereby God comes into the life of his people. He shows himself, that is to say, in a particular way. He reveals himself. So, for example, in the very first verse, in the book of Ezekiel, we read this, in the 30th year, in the fourth month, on the fifth day of the month, as I was among the exiles by the Kebar Canal, the heavens were opened, and I saw visions of God, Ezekiel says, Sometimes God opens the heavens to send judgment as He did on the day of the flood, which we read this morning in Genesis 7-11. We see that same idea in Isaiah 24-18 and Isaiah 64-1. Sometimes He opens the heavens to pour out blessings upon His people, as Malachi prophesied in Malachi 3-10. But always when God opens the heavens... We know that God is going to reveal Himself in some way to His people. And here we see the heavens opened by God. It shows a dramatic revelation of the one God who is maker of all things. 
This passage is no exception. In this case, he first reveals himself as the Spirit descends. Now, I must say that we need to understand that the Spirit of God is a person. It's not it, but He. Not a mere power or force, but a person. In Luke, this point is suggested by the active verb, the Spirit descended. And the fact that He took on a bodily form, that form of a dove, form like a dove. That is, He was visibly manifesting Himself to the people who saw Jesus baptized. This is a little bit too subtle. We see that Luke frequently does this in his writings. For example, in Acts 8.29, we see that the Spirit speaks to Philip. Again, in Acts 13.2, he spoke to the church in Antioch and instructed them and commanded them to set apart Saul and Barnabas for a particular work. The point I am making is this. Forces, they don't speak They don't act. They don't command. The Spirit of God speaks. The Spirit of God acts. The Spirit of God descends. The Spirit of God takes upon Himself a form. He is a person, fully God. And we need to understand that. We've already seen evidence of the Spirit's empowerment in Christ's life. Mary conceived by the power of the Holy Spirit in Luke 1.35. Moreover, Luke's account in Luke 2, verse 40 to 52 of the boy Jesus in the temple shows us that the Spirit is working in his life in subtle ways. For we see throughout Luke that the gift of wisdom is a gift of the Spirit. We see that also in Acts, that it is evidence of the Spirit's work in a person's life. We ought not, therefore, to conclude that this is the first time that the Spirit came upon Christ, the first time that he was with Jesus, but rather we ought to understand that this, in this moment, was the moment when the Spirit of God manifested his presence in the life of Christ. It was an anointing from heaven that showed Jesus to be the Christ. And that's what John testified in John 1.33, as we read. That's what he said that God had revealed to him, that the one on whom you see the Spirit rest, he is the one who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. And just as Peter said in Acts 10.38, which we read, God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and with power. To understand this anointing, it's helpful to appreciate the Old Testament context from which it comes. And we can see this from the prophet Isaiah. In Isaiah 11, in Isaiah 11 verse 2, we read these words, There shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse, and a branch from his roots shall bear fruit, and the Spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him, the Spirit of wisdom and understanding, the Spirit of counsel and might, the Spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. Likewise, in Isaiah 42 verse 1, We read these words, Behold, my servant whom I uphold, my chosen in whom my soul delights. I have put my spirit upon him. He will bring forth justice to the nations. And this is likely the passage that is at the forefront of Luke's mind. But it is not the only one, for Luke will record that Jesus read these words from Isaiah 61 verse 1 in the synagogue 
in Nazareth at the outset of his ministry when he read, The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives, and the opening of the prison to those who are bound. Thus you can see why it was such an important sign that the Spirit of God descended upon and remained upon Jesus. This is the consistent message across the pages of Isaiah that the Christ would be singularly endowed with the Holy Spirit. For all who knew the words of Isaiah, when they saw the Spirit descend in bodily form, they would have been faced with one unavoidable conclusion. Jesus is the Christ. In a sense, though, all of this is the iceberg above the waterline. The voice of God from heaven, however, bids us further. With his words, he invites us to look beneath the surface as he declares, You are my beloved son. With you, I am well pleased. From heaven, when God said this, he declared three things to Jesus. And he did so for our benefit. The voice was heard. It was not internal or unintelligible. It was not like Charlie Brown's teacher, which no one can understand. They heard the voice from heaven, they heard what God said to Jesus. He spoke to him and he spoke for our benefit so that we might know that Jesus Christ is the Son of God, beloved of God, and pleasing to God. If we wondered whether Jesus was baptized to repent of his own sin, we can put that question to rest with that last statement. Jesus pleased the Father. He always pleased God. He is perfect and sinless in every way. Just as the author of Hebrews said in Hebrews 4.15, For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weakness, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. He shares in our weakness, but he does not share in our sin. He is the perfect Son of God. Thus, The Father says, with you I am well pleased. Echoing the words of Isaiah 42, 1 again, my servant in whom my soul delights. It communicates God's complete and total pleasure in the Son. Second, God declares that Jesus is his Son. When God showed himself to Israel by his mighty works, when he brought them out of Egypt, With his mighty hand, he made it known to them that he alone is God. Accordingly, Moses taught Israel to remember this truth with these words from Deuteronomy. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. Israel didn't learn that lesson very well because they kept in their history turning to idols. But the Old Testament again and again fully and completely communicates this message as we read this morning together from Isaiah. As we look back to the former things of old, we remember that there is but one God. He says, I am God and there is no other. I am God and there is none like me. Declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient times, things not yet done, saying, My counsel shall stand, and I will accomplish all my purpose. There is but one God. He alone is God. And this is the clear and unmistakable message that rings across the pages of the Old Testament. 
Thus, for the people who stood on the Jordan that day, God revealed something that they could hardly understand in the moment. It would take much more unfolding before they could understand. But in that moment, this one God, the one God of all the universe, began to make it known that He is forever and always Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. He made it known as the Spirit descended and as He declared, You are my beloved Son. And finally, God declares that Jesus is His beloved And this is no minor addition. Here he makes known to us the reality of his eternal love. The eternal love that the Father has for the Son and that the Son has for the Father. The eternal love that exists between the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. This is what he makes known when he says, You are my beloved Son. He always has been and always will be. As the Apostle John says in 1 John 4, 8, God who is love. God is love. That simple statement can only be true if God is triune. Thus, whatever our world thinks love is, and whatever it may mean when it says love is love, we must recognize that love cannot be defined apart from the simple fact that God is love. Or more concretely, it cannot be defined apart from the love that exists within the Godhead, between the Father, the Son, and the Spirit. And amazingly, in Jesus' incarnate life, God put His love on display so that we might know what it is. We might know what love is when we look at the Father and the Son whom He sent. Now, for, for many of us, To speak of this way, to speak of Trinitarian theology, is to elicit a chorus of yawns. What does this have to do with the gospel, we think? What does it have to do with our salvation? The short answer to these questions is everything. It has everything to do with our salvation. But to see this, we must learn to speak about this subject according to the testimony of Scripture. You see, the way many talk about the Trinity may leave us with the impression that the doctrine has more to do with church history or medieval philosophy than with the Bible. Secular scholars would have us believe it was the invention of the church 300 years after Jesus' birth, while others speak about the subject in a way that is largely incomprehensible outside of philosophy departments. As Fred Sanders writes, there is no surer way to strip the doctrine of the Trinity of all its significance and desiccate most of its interest than to treat it as the transferal of a set of facts about God that were revealed for their own sake as mere information. The resulting pile of Bible verses or heap of doctrinal statements is theologically and spiritually inert. In such treatments, we get the impression that we ourselves have nothing to do with the mystery of the Holy Trinity except to know something about it through revelation. This dry approach with its reduction of revelation to non-salvation statements whose power is identical to their authority is maybe uncommon in academic theology today, but it's still fairly widespread in writing for the churches. What I hope to show you then this morning is that the Trinity has everything to do with our salvation, and it was not a doctrine invented by later generations of Christians. That is, the doctrine, as we've seen from Luke, arises out of Scripture. It it was articulated by later Christians as they looked to the testimony of Scripture and they saw what God 
revealed in the Gospels. This is the first way in which we see that the doctrine of the Trinity has to do with our, our, our salvation. For ask, let's ask ourselves, how do we know that God is triune? How do you know? Or how would you show it to someone from Scripture? You could start in the book of Genesis and just walk through the Old Testament and pull out every little nugget that seems to look like it speaks about God's triune nature, but that's rather like trying to show someone a skyscraper while walking backwards toward it in its shadow. God is triune and always has been, and so, of course, we see examples of it in the Old Testament. But we see it with clarity when we come to the Gospels. Or as Paul states it very succinctly in Galatians 4, 4 through 6, when he writes these words, But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth His Son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, so that we might receive adoptions as sons. And because you are sons, God has sent the Spirit of His Son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. How do you know that God is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit? Because in the fullness of time, God sent the Son. And in the fullness of time, God sent the Spirit. We know because God saved us by sending His Son and by sending the Spirit to apply His saving work in our lives. But if we left it at that, we might be left with the impression that the revelation of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit is nothing more than an interesting byproduct of, our sa- of His saving work. But I want you to see that it is an essential truth that stands at the foundation of His saving work. We do not merely know that He is triune because He saved us. His saving work is bound up with His triune nature. To put it more forcefully, we have salvation because God is triune. Let me highlight two ways in which this is true. Consider those words from Galatians. God sent forth His Son, born of a woman, born under the law. The Son of God became like us. This was necessary for our salvation. If it were not so, we would not be saved. Again, we can look to the book of Hebrews to appreciate the importance of this truth. You see, in Hebrews chapter 2, verses 14 through 18, we read these words, Since, therefore, the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is, the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. For surely it is not angels that he helps, but he helps the offspring of Abraham. Therefore, he had to be made like his brothers in every respect so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. You see what the author of Hebrews is saying? If he didn't become like us, we don't have an atoning sacrifice. Angels don't have an atoning sacrifice. Angels don't have forgiveness. Angels don't have a Savior because Christ did not become like them. He became like us, and this was necessary. We must understand that the Son of God became like us in order to save us. But also, we must recognize that He is fully God. If He's not the Son of God, we still do not have salvation. 
So one author describes a question that his daughter posed to him when he, she was young. She said to her, her father, who's a theologian, Dad, why couldn't God just make another perfect Adam who could be the sacrifice for our sins? Why did it have to be Jesus? Why did it have to be the Son of God? And it's a good question. It's a question that I suspect that some of you have wondered about. It's a question that I've wondered about in my own life. And as, as Bruce Ware explains, if Jesus were just a perfect man, he would need to pay for our sins in the way, same way that we would pay for our sins. And how do we pay for our sins if we pay for our sins? Forever. We owe an infinite debt because we have transgressed against an infinite God and we are finite beings and our finite lives can never satisfy the infinite debt we owe. And so, what is the judgment? It's eternal. It's an eternal judgment. It could not have just been any man. Our debt against the Holy God could only be paid by one who is the Son of God, that one who is fully God and fully man. Christ being fully man could stand in our place and being fully God, He could pay our debt finally and fully in His death on the cross. As Peter wrote in 1 Peter 2.24, He Himself bore our sins in His body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. These words that so encourage us are only true because our God is a God who is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Because in the fullness of time, God sent His Son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem us from under the law, and to be that atoning sacrifice for our sins. But there's another way in which this truth that God is triune has to do with our salvation. For when we think about our salvation, it's not enough to simply think about what we are saved from. We must also look and think about what we are saved unto. And here I want to draw your attention again back to this one word in Luke chapter 2, beloved. And then let me also draw your attention to those words which I read from Galatians 4. Specifically the first and the last statement. God sent forth his son so that we might receive adoptions as sons adoption as sons and because you are sons God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts crying abba father do you see what paul is saying in galatians god sent his son that we might become children of the living god that we might share in the love of our triune god the love of the one the father who says to the Son, You are my beloved Son. In saving us, He adopts us. He brings us into that fellowship so that we might share in that fellowship. As the Apostle John tells us in 1 John. Perhaps no other biblical writer presents this idea more clearly than John. Listen just to some of the texts as I read them from John's Gospel as he describes the love of the Father for the Son. In John 3.35, Christ says the Father loves the Son and has given all things into His hand. And in John 5.20, the Father loves the Son and shows Him all that He Himself is doing. 
And in John 10, 17, For this reason the Father loves me, because I lay down my life, that I may take it up again. And once more in John 17, 24, Father, Christ prays, I desire that they also whom you have given me may be with me where I am, to see my glory that you have given me, because you loved me before the foundation of the world. And this text also that describes the love of the Son for the Father. In John 14, 31, But I do as the Father has commanded me, so that you may know that I love the Father. And finally, here are these texts that describe the love of the Father and the Son for us. In John 13, 1, Now the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of this world, to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. John 15, 9, As the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. In 16, 27, For the Father himself loves you because you have loved me and have believed that I came from God. In 1 John three sixteen, By this we know love that he laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. And one more in 1 John 4, 9 through 10. In this, the love of God was made manifest among us, that God sent his only Son into the world so that, he might live, that we might live through him. In this is love. Not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his Son to be the propitiation for our sins. What I am saying is this, that when God said, you are my beloved son, he revealed to us a hint of a relationship of perfect, eternal love. And when the Father sent the Son to redeem us, he actualized that eternal love in a concrete way as he made a way for us to share in that love forever. So as we behold our God, we see one who in his nature is the very definition of love. And in his dealings with us, particularly in the incarnation of Christ, he shows us that the love, what the lo- love looks like in concrete ways. That's what we're saved unto. We are redeemed so that we might be children of the living God. And if we are his children, then he loves us. And he enables us to love him, and to love one another. This is why the Father sent his beloved Son into the world so that he might save us unto this. And in this light, there is really only one application. There is really only one response that is appropriate. In a word, doxology, worship. So let us praise our God, our God who is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, with all that is in us. And to do that, we're going to join our voices together in a minute in a closing hymn of the Father's love begotten. But before before we do, I want you to consider the words of that hymn. For we think of this as a Christmas hymn, but it is really much more. It is a hymn concerning the eternal relationship of the Father to the Son. It is a hymn concerning our triune God, who is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And thus, the first words of this hymn, of the Father's love begotten ere the worlds began to be. He is Alpha and Omega, He the source, the ending He, of the things that are, that have been, and that future years shall see, evermore and evermore. 
These words speak of an eternal relationship which Christians have confessed for centuries. It's reflected in the Nicene Creed where Christians confess, we believe in one Lord Jesus Christ, the only Son of God, eternally begotten of the Father, God from God, light from light, true God from true God, begotten, not made, of one being with the Father. In these words, we confess an eternal relationship using the words of John 3.16, the only begotten Son. And we confess what we understand from Hebrews 1.3, that He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of His nature. This is not to say that we can comprehend all that these words mean. For God is incomprehensible. That means He will never be fully comprehended by any man or any angel or any creature He has made. For He is incomprehensible. Nevertheless, we can understand what He has revealed, that He is eternally and forever one God, one being, one nature, and yet eternally existing in three persons, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, distinct from one another, and yet in perfect union together. And this is so important in our lives, so important to confess and so important to believe, because, as I have presented, it is intimately bound up with our salvation. For we know that this is so, because in the fullness of time God sent His Son And in the fullness of time, God sent His Spirit. And so, let us praise Him. So we shall, evermore and evermore. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we come to You with praise, with joyful hearts, worshiping You who sent Your Son, worshiping You who sent Your Spirit, so that we might have life through your Son. Father, we confess that you are the one God. O Lord God, our triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, you are the one God, eternal and infinite. So we pray, O Lord, that you would receive our humble praise this morning as we bow before you in worship. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.